chapter 4. By way of review then, let's just uh, read the Bible we were looking at last week, the first four verses of the first five verses of the chapter. He dealt specifically with how I, as a pastor, Jeff and I as elders, are to view ourselves, but then how the church is to understand our position. We saw that, first of all, we have an identity. A pastor is a servant. Minister means servant. He's a servant, first of all, of the Lord, and therefore a servant of the church. We use the idea of a waitress uh, that I think illustrates uh, very well what a pastor is. A waitress serves you by serving you food. I serve you by serving you the word of God, the bread from heaven. But we all do that to serve the master. And so that's my identity. The requirement then uh, in, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 4 was that I am faithful to do that. It's not change it, to treat it seriously. Not to preach what you want to hear, but to preach what God has said. That's what we need. To hear from God, not ourselves. And so my primary concern then is how the Lord evaluates me because he is our ultimate judge. Doesn't mean that we don't care what others think about us, but that primarily, especially when it comes to standing behind this pulpit, I am responsible first and foremost to obey the Lord and to uh, make sure that he is happy with what I have done. He is honored with what I have done. What I have done. And so today, though, as we look at verses 6 and 7, we want to think about a biblical self-image. How am I to think about myself? And not just me as a pastor, but how all of us are to think about ourselves. One of the causes of division, the Corinthian church was exalting teachers uh, above measure to uh, to say, you know, and I've just heard uh, this uh, this week about guys who have come to the church and they want they try to force the church to do things the way this famous pastor does it, and if and if they don't do it the way he did it, then uh, then they start causing division in the church because no, this is, this guy's got all the answers. This has got the right way, and this caused division in the church, and, and in one case had to be put out because. Uh, you know, to understand, no, this person's not your pastor. Your elders in that local church are your pastor. And, uh, and so it's, it's, it's a common problem. And this is what's going on in the church at Corinth. Someone comes along with a slant of Christian living and that becomes a, the focus. I've got this whole, this whole thing figured out. And often what happens, of course, is it detracts us from being consumed with Christ to being consumed with a technique or some peripheral doctrine. And it becomes the focus of everything. And in a very real sense, it becomes law. Because all we're expected to follow, and so if, if this is how a cult is formed, where everything's got to be done this way, and there's no uh, Christian liberty, uh, this man has got it all figured out, and he almost takes the place of Jesus Christ. And it becomes the key that we all are to live by. And uh, then if you don't, then you're uh, put out. And we don't want to be careful that we don't get so caught up in peripheral doctrines or these things that we forget the, the main purpose of why we come together, to hear from God, to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, and to be conformed to his image. And that undergirds everything we do. And if, and if I ever get to where all I, I seem to get, get caught up in eschatology, or, or as I, I hear in my notes, this, this can take... Uh, Root or uh, it, it comes across in different forms. 
some, all you ever hear from the pulpit is eschatology, right? I mean, that's a real common problem. But, but this, I think of what we're talking about. Maybe uh, how one dresses, the music in the church, politics, all these things can become the focus. Storing food for the apocalypse. You know, there are churches that get all caught up in that. Certainly Christians get caught up in that. Calvinism, you know, as, as important as that is, you know, that's not what it's all about. That's part of Christian doctrine. You name it. We can divide and overemphasize almost anything. That's what sin does. It, 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 it just it, it gets us consumed with something. Even Satan even wants us sometimes to be consumed with things other than Christ, which is what all these things are to bring us to. And so the perspective Paul speaks of here is not our default view of ourselves. I think as we we read these two verses, we're not born, and that's what sin does it. Sin 101, it's to make me be consumed with myself, right? And and so it's not our default view of ourselves, verses 6 and 7, to think about, um, especially 7, that I'm not any more special than anybody else. That I deserve what I have. You know, that's not how we tend to think of ourselves. And, and Paul reminds us, this: you guys are not thinking straight. This is what's causing all these divisions. We think we are wiser than we are, that we're not as needy as we are, that we're far more important than we are, and that leads to weakness in our lives. It's no surprise because our culture's mantra is exactly the opposite of what we need here. Our, our culture has said for years, ever since I know I've been alive, I've heard this, and that is that um, your problems often mostly stem from a low self-esteem. And yet it seems to me these verses are saying that our problem is that we esteem ourselves too much. That we don't the world tells us we don't think highly enough of ourselves. And you can actually buy books with daily readings that tell you about how great you are. And of course, one wonders why you can't get along with people. Uh, and why you're riddled with so many failures if you're so wonderful. But the Bible at no point teaches self-esteem is taught in our day. In fact, it points out that one of the ways the world manifests itself is in self-love. The Bible always assumes self-love because that's what sin does, self-love. It makes us love ourselves and love ourselves too much. And there's, again, there's nothing wrong with self-preservation. We, we, you know, I think it's an instinct to take care of ourselves. We don't like pain. We don't want to die. But that's not, that's going with the self-love we're talking about is to put ourselves above others, our needs not just above others, but primarily above God. There are a lot of people who give themselves to people to help them, to care about them, but they do not give themselves like that to the Lord. And so even in their selflessness and their lifestyle, they are being selfish because they're saying, Lord, I will live my life from, from the way I want to and not you. But Second Timothy tells us, Paul tells Timothy, that this is the, the, in the last days, which began when Christ left and sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, people will be lovers of self. That, that this is a problem. This is something you got to be aware of. This isn't a good thing. Lovers of money. 
proud, arrogant, abusive, and all those things really stem from self-love, right? Why do you abuse people? Why are you arrogant? Well, because you love you think you're more important. You deserve something else more than they do. Disobedient to parents. I mean, kids are born. Loving self. Ungrateful, unholy. Again, all those things stem from self-love. <clears throat> and so what the world says is the cure for your problems, the Bible says is the problem itself. What we need is not for everyone to recognize how important we are and praise us and give us credit and respect, but for us to realize how needy we are, how that we really have, without Christ, we have nothing and we amount to nothing. And I know that doesn't go across well for a lot of people. But if you don't have Christ, if you're not right with God, you will never amount to anything. I don't care what you do in this world. If you die in your sins and go to hell and leave it all behind, have you amount? What have you done? Now, each as as image bearers, as human beings, we all have potential. Uh, we the, the potential for tremendous value. We can do great things, but it's it starts in being in Christ and doing things for Christ. So no matter how much potential you have, if you don't do it for the right reason, it becomes just another bad work. And it would hang in straw if we saw a couple weeks ago. The fact that God sent his son to redeem you, that you might enjoy him forever, gives us tremendous value. But it's not apart from that. The value comes in that God forgives our sin through Christ Jesus and dwells us in the Holy Spirit so that we might know God and serve God. The value we have is serving God. So, we have to always keep those things in mind, remembering that today we're looking at biblical self-image. How do I see myself? Where does my value lie? It doesn't lie in the fact that you happen to be a human being. It lies in the fact that you God brings brings you back to what a human being was created to be that lies in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so in verse 6, he uses himself and Apollos, the elders and apostles and elders of the church, as an example of how they should be thinking of themselves. And this will get bring us into next week as we deal, as he continues this thought. But they have in their own arrogance, exalted their teachers above Christ as far as an influence in their lives. And that's an example of worldly wisdom. And what we're going to see here, in, especially in verse uh, 7, and then the following verses next week, and we'll read a couple of that today just so you can see that, There's these verses are full of uh, sarcasm. He's saying a lot of things tongue-in-cheek. He, he, he's saying it, but you... But you have to understand what he says. For instance, in chapters 12 through 14, he's going to be dealing with gifts. These Corinthian uh, member church members had many gifts, spiritual gifts. But they were using those gifts to think more highly of themselves than they should be. Because they had the gift of, of, of tongues, for instance, or healing, they thought, wow, look at me. And they used the gifts that were given to serve one another to become a source of arrogance and pride and dividing themselves with one another. And so it becomes a way to brag about yourself. Because they were all wrapped up in the experience, and not the point of that experience was to edify one another to the glory of Jesus Christ. 
And so the sarcasm that he uses here isn't to, to belittle them, but to make them say, look, something is drastically wrong in the way you're thinking. Just look at this. Uh, for instance, um, verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. Well, they aren't rich or they're, and they're not kings, but they think that they are. They've got these great gifts. And so they're thinking of themselves as having already arrived. And Paul says, even us apostles and, and pastors don't have what you guys think you have. So what's wrong here? So look, notice what he says. And, and would that you did reign so that we might share rule with you. For I think that God, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. So notice the sarcasm. The world thinks us as fools. You are doing everything you can to uh, make people think you are wise. We are weak, but you are strong. You despise us because uh, we don't have the eloquence that you're looking for. We're being belittled. We don't have the uh, respect of this world. We don't have the riches of this world. We're, we're being kicked out of places. We're being persecuted. You guys are living comfortable lives. And you're taking that to think that Christ um, is happy with you. You're using that to be arrogant because the visions of the church. You have what we don't have and you're despising us for it. Because what he's saying is you don't have what you think you have. You're laying up treasures on earth and not in heaven. The Pharisee in the temple was like this. His sin, when he when he thanked God that he uh, the God had... Uh, he wasn't like this other, this publican, this sinner. His sin is not in thanking God for whatever he had. It was that he actually thought that there was a difference between him and this other sinner, that he deserved what he had. But you see how that plays into verse 7. There's nothing wrong with being thankful if the Lord has saved you from a life of outward immorality, for instance. But as soon as you think you are less of a sinner than the prostitute, or whoever, that you deserve it and they don't. You completely miss the point. I thank the Lord that he saved me, that he's working in me, but I know that it's only by the grace of God, as verse 7 says, it's not because I'm better than somebody else. As soon as you think you have it all figured out, that everybody needs to jump on your bandwagon, everybody's got to do things your way, there's just weakness and division. It is only as we see ourselves and everyone is around us, everyone around us as sinners who need Christ, that everything, uh, that we need Christ if we're going to ever gain any victory, uh, if we're ever going to be holy, uh, we accept each other as brothers and sisters of Christ, all sinners saved by grace, will there be any real uh, spiritual strength? And if you don't, if you think you've arrived at some, to, at some, high elevated spiritual point and the poor slob next to you hasn't. You just become an arrogant, judgmental jerk that will never uh, serve the Lord effectively. And, and, and maybe I'm overstating some of this, but it's easy for us to subtly think of ourselves because we uh, 
you know, didn't fall into that sin. We were, set, we were, you know, we never went that far in our sin before the Lord saved us. Whatever we do, we, we think of ourselves as somehow just a little better than somebody else. And, and we're going to see that. We pointed out that's the problem here in chapter 11 uh, of, of thinking of causing divisions in the church for that very reason. So he uses himself and Apollos as its examples of, but they, but, but he, what he's saying here is that you guys are the ones with the problem. At verse 10, as I read there, uh, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We, you are held in honor, but we in disrepute. And of course, it, it, the act, the opposite's true. Maybe in the world all that's true, but before the Lord, he's saying, no, you're not what you think you are. And so he says in verse 6 that he's trying to teach them something when he teaches them. Not, he's not just trying to show how wise he is. He's I've got to teach you God's word so that you can be transformed, that you can have change. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us to not go beyond what is written. You guys are taking the, the grace of God, the gifts of God, and, and Elevating yourself in pride, but you forgot that the kingdom of God is the servant who is great. If we just in Sunday school we talked about uh, the Lord is concerned; He comes and He'll visit with the one who's contrite in spirit. You guys are are, are trying to work in, in God's kingdom in the exact opposite way by being served. But the one who's great in God's kingdom is the one who does the serving. And then he see that he wants them to apply it. It's sad when the gospel doesn't profoundly affect us. When we don't apply what we learn, it, it makes us humble. And that's what the, remember chapter 3, the whole fleshly carnal Christians were the ones, the babies of Christ were the ones who did not realize that, that to grow strong in the Lord is to become a servant to others. Jesus said love is the fulfillment of the law, which basically means that's the essence of Christian living. And love serves other, the, one, the object of your love. Nothing should make us more loving than to experience the grace and love of the cross. But it is when becoming a Christian makes us look disapprovingly on others that we are now going in the opposite direction. How will these Corinthians know if they are benefiting from the gospel and not worldly wisdom? Well, there won't be any cliques among them. There won't be all these divisions among them for sure. They won't be emphasizing methodology or pet doctrines to the detriment of the gospel. They will be elevating Jesus Christ. And that's true of each one of us. You say, am I progressing in the Lord, in, in the faith? Am I growing as a Christian? Well, do you I elevate Christ in your life? Is, is a pastor in my teaching? Am I elevating Christ in my teaching? Or am I elevating myself? Or am I expecting people to serve me? The only way you know you're progressing is that we're following hard after Christ. And, and even if you, you feel that's the truth, it doesn't mean that well, we've arrived anywhere. It just means we're on the right track. We're going in the right direction. Well, that brings us to verse 7 then. Where he, he sums up, he sums up the whole idea of where we should, how we should understand ourselves and our absolute need of grace by asking three questions. 
First of all, he says, what makes you so special here in verse 7? For who sees anything different in you? This is a little, uh, you, know, you see all the translations and you see it's a little bit, uh, bit difficult perhaps to express this in an easy way. Um, but what has happened here is that these self-proclaimed teachers have taken the teaching of others and made them pet doctrines, as we've already said. Uh, it, and so it, Christianity becomes all about me instead of uh, all about transforming me to be, transforming me to be like Christ. And so they say uh, we know more than the rest. We know more than Paul. We know more than Apollos. And uh, we know what, how to be a successful Christian. And so what he's what he's saying here in this first question is, uh, is some have pointed out that the first answer here isn't God, because it ha- the idea in the Greek is that uh, what he's saying here is that what makes you superior to somebody else? Uh, that's why I have it here. What makes you so special? That's the idea behind. Uh, what the ESV here, you know, tries to, to bring this out to some degree. Who sees anything different in you? And, and the idea is of superiority. So the, the lectum, uh, English translation says, for who can see you superiority? Who, who says yes, you are superior? That you're better than somebody else? And of course the answer is not God. It's not that God has made you better than anybody else. The answer is no one. It's not, it's not true. You're not better than anybody else. It's like sometimes we say, who died and made you king? You're, you're, you're overstepping your bounds. You think you're better than somebody else. And the first thing Paul says is, look, you have to understand, we're all on the even playing field here. So today our schools are telling our children that they are, so, they're so special and so unique. Don't let anybody squash your dreams. Because you have a right to be whatever you want to be. Don't anyone tell you differently. Well, in America, maybe. But not before God. God is the one who tells you who you are and what you are to be. And so, they've been taught that they're special, that they're unique. And so then they come to church, and if the Bible's being taught, they learn that there aren't any different than the guy sitting next to them. This person struggling with addiction who maybe doesn't have the money they have, or the looks they have, or the fame that they have, the respect that they have, and they, they think, well, you, you, I'm not, I'm better than this person. And then, uh, to make matters worse, perhaps they hear that, well, not only you're not any better than anybody else, but you're uh, a, a guilty sinner before God. You're not good at all. There's none that are good. You're ruined. And you need a radical change. And then they're told that, it isn't their dreams and their will that they were created for, but it was God's will. And so they've been taught, either by the parents of the school system, that your will, don't let anyone tell you you're wrong or you can't do something. You, you can do whatever you want to do. And at church they're told, no, you're created for God and His will. And no wonder they have no, no part of it. Or we go find a church that will say that your life can revolve around you. So the first question he asks here in verse 7 is, uh, what, what makes you think you're more special than somebody else? We're all created the same. 
In fact, I, I, one way to illustrate it, I think, uh, uh, if I tell my age, I'm not sure kids today even have ever seen these things. Remember when there were these little paper cut-out dolls? And they would just be a plain doll, and then you would take these little cut-out the dress and you fold the little tab and you would hang that tab on and you would dress them up like taking the paper clothes and put them on there. And people used to actually do that. And I was thinking about that. Well, this is kind of what, what Paul's saying is, God, we're all just cut out dogs. We're playing with the same. And God dresses us according to how he wants us to do. He'll gift us some with good looks, some with a, a great speaking ability, some with a dynamic personality. Good things in and of themselves. Some he'll give money to. Some he won't. Some he won't, won't give as much things to. They'll be dressed a little more plainly. But we're all the same. We're all just that doll, and we don't have, just like that doll has absolutely no say in what kind of dress gets put on there. And that's how we were. We were born, and, and God decided how, where we were going to be born, and whatever we were going to have. Wouldn't it be silly? And, and this is how sin works. So I, here we are, we're, we're this doll, we've got the doll next to us, and we, we're just, we're just plain white. God puts a fancy dress on me, and you just get like a small ratty dress. No, I must be better. Look at me. And all of a sudden, you start looking down on that person. And as a Paul saying, "What is wrong with you? What do you have that you didn't receive? You're not. You're not any better than anybody else. This is all about God. And 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 then to, to make matters worse for the person who doesn't get as much money, or maybe is not as healthy, and he's got a rougher life." Is actually the more blessed because often that person has a, a more opportunity to serve the Lord for greater reward. Just because you have an easy life, often that just means well you're not you're not going to have the opportunities. It's not really a blessing sometimes to have easier things, to have more. And so he asks, "What makes you so special?" When, as the next question's answer shows, none of us have anything that God didn't give us. What do you have that you didn't receive? You're that doll. You were just sitting there, and all of a sudden, God gave you life. He put you where he put you. So the answer to the first two questions is nobody and nothing. Nobody thinks you're special. Because you're not. And you don't have anything that, that God didn't give you. We're all begging for. We're all just a recipient of God's grace. We're no more special than anybody else. We don't possess anything that God didn't give us. We're all beggars. Whether physically or spiritually, we're begging for. And to think otherwise is just like that poor old Pharisee who thanked God that he wasn't like a bad sinner as that guy. Complete arrogance and disregard for who he really was. But we notice how in the next verses he gets rather satirical. As you read here, you guys have it all figured out, but even the apostles know they don't have it all figured out. You demand that everyone follow you and give you adulation. Even the, the apostles know that's not going to happen to them. They go around preaching, are belittled and abused by the world, and yet these Christians, these, these uh, Christians at the foreign church, at the Corinthian church, have somehow think that they deserve better than the apostles have done. To make matters worse, they consider themselves to know more than their teachers and deserve more adulation than the apostles. 
But, but Paul's saying, why is it that the apostles don't have these things? And these guys uh, have it or seem to be thriving, but the apostles aren't. And it, it should make them realize, well, uh, what I have here, maybe this isn't what I need. Something's wrong here. And read, this is, let's just uh, start at verse 11 and read down to verse 13 to finish that thought. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. So not just spiritual things, but even in this world, in, in physical things, we labor, we're working with our own hands, when reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure, when slandered we retreat, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, and we'll get to what that means next week. The refuge of all things, and you despise us because you think that as Christians, uh, God should uh, be blessing you and you should be able to have whatever you want. He's saying that the apostles and elders are outcasts of the world and they suffer for it, but you think you need you should be honored. But let's remind ourselves why he says all these things. If you want to be great in the kingdom, as I've pointed out before, and Jesus says, you will get on your knees and start serving people. You, you realize I'm a minister, I'm a server, and I don't need fancy clothes and a lot of money fame and respect. I don't need any respect to serve. I don't, I, I don't need to be respected by the world. In fact, the Lord said I'm going to be despised by the world and that's just to make me a more humble, better servant. These who are dividing the church were fleshly and immature Christians and have come to think of themselves as somebody and they look down on other saints and they thought that they had all the answers and that everyone was should give them the proper respect that they deserve. Don't anyone dismiss me, say today. Don't dismiss me as unimportant. Don't dismiss what I say, my opinion. Who are you? But as Jesus says, this makes you small and a little use of the kingdom of God. Now you might be in it. I'm not saying you know, it doesn't mean you're not in it necessarily, but it means you're not doing much in it. You're you're you're, you're a in the kingdom of God, but you're not a good servant. And if you're not a good servant, you're not great in the kingdom. You're not you're not doing anything for the Lord. Service is what reigns in God's kingdom, and expecting to be served will not accomplish anything. And so second in Second Corinthians, it seems like some didn't get this message and had come to see themselves as super apostles. We have the secret to being a Christian, of running the church, of raising families, and all along, they're pointing people to themselves instead of Christ. But we need to keep elevating Christ before others, not our knowledge, not our level of godliness, not... And again, you see how all this plays into those in the health and wealth gospel, because they keep saying, if you're doing things right, if you have faith, if you pray properly, whatever, you'll have money, you'll have fame, you'll have health. It's exactly what Paul is saying, exactly not the case. It doesn't mean that every Christian doesn't have to, is poor, needy, or whatever. But that's not what being, the kingdom of God is about. You're, 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 saying, you're, you're, you're saying exactly the opposite of what Paul is saying. That's what makes the healthy wealth gospel such an awful thing. So I hope you understand here that the biblical self uh, image is one of I all I have is what Christ has given me. And, and I don't deserve it any more than anybody else. 
what I've been given is to serve the Lord, and as soon as I use it to serve myself, I've completely started to dishonor the Lord. So let me end with some balance here, because as I said in Sunday school, some of these texts are, are all getting on them pretty heavily, you know, satire, for instance, sarcasm. But let me end with some balance here. Both of these epistles, First and Second Corinthians, have a lot of negative things in them because it's some serious sin in the church. When we get to chapter five, we're going to see incest in adultery right? that hasn't been dealt with. Some serious problems here. But correction should always lead us to positive change. And the Lord's aim here is not to be walked around in depression because I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm just not. I don't deserve anything. I'm just you know, woe is me. That, that that's going old, overboard. The Lord's aim is not that we just become depressed and that we don't think we have any value and I can't do anything. No, that's not the point. In Christ, I can do everything that the Lord would have me do. But if we can only be happy if we are full of ourselves, then deep inside you're not going to be happy anymore. So so here, the, the positive thing here is that this is, about understanding who I am and that I am just a sinner. But that's where joy comes because now Christ has loved me and gave himself for me and now I'm in the family of God. And so now I can rejoice. Even in the worst of times, I can be happy and and useful in the kingdom of God. So there's great positive here, but you've got to get to the right place first. We're image bearers. We have immense value because we have been created to follow hard after God and enjoy Him forever. Our value comes in that we bring honor to our Creator and our Savior. And what we have been seeing in this text is that to find value in self, self-exaltation rather than God-exaltation will actually not make you happy, will not bring any worth or value to your life, just the opposite. And so I can be most fulfilled when I understand that I am only worth something if I am living up to whatever I was created to be to start with, right? If I was created to glorify God in all that I do, and I'm out there just doing whatever I do, no matter how great it might be, and and God's got no part in it, what, what value as a human being am I? Apart from the Lord, we are useless. We're not even living up to our duties as a human being. The world thinks that they can live life ignoring the Lord and do great things, and that because of that, they deserve recognition and praise. And of course, you see all about the reward shows on TV and all the adulations and all that kind of stuff. And it's not to say that some people shouldn't, you know, it's it's nothing wrong with acknowledging, like we, you know, think about the Medal of Honor recipients here of late and all that. And they deserve recognition for what they've done. But at the end of the day, if they haven't done it for the Lord, it's not, those males aren't following them when they die. You cannot live ignoring the Lord and expect to be received into heaven. And it's particularly ugly when Christians do it. That's what the problem here. Christians are living as the lost and they think they're doing something good. And so the point of all this is not for us to go around depressed or because we're ruined sinners. It is to repent and start enjoying the Lord. And he'll 
He's already talked about repentance. We saw that in chapter 3. and In chapter 5, he'll talk about repentance again. He's going to get on to them for not disciplining somebody in the church. But it's not just that we've got a bunch of useless people. No, get right. Do what you need to do. Get right back. Get right with God and get back to doing what we should be doing. So verse 7 is reminding us that without Christ we have nothing. Just as, as we saw in chapter 3, with Christ we have everything. So there's positive things in our text, but they don't come unless we empty ourselves of thinking that we deserve anything other than the grace of God. So certainly this text reminds us that if we are being faithful, whether you're the pastor or not, if, if we're being faithful, then we don't have to have what others have. We should be still be full of joy because we're laying up treasures in heaven, which is what we're here to do anyway. So let me disclose the two or three passages of scripture that I think bear some this out. First of all, obviously Matthew six nineteen, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. You can't take it with you, and it's not just material things. If you don't, it's the well done, thou good and faithful servant is the one thing that, that nobody can take from us. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Does this not mean that we are not to evaluate ourselves or others by what they have, but what they are doing in serving the Lord? That's what should get us excited. That's what I should respect and elevate somebody in my life as, as a mentor or as a teacher or as somebody I want to emulate is how well they serve the Lord. And what, what, unfortunately, I think in the flesh, if Elon Musk walked in here today, we would, oh wow, Elon Musk is here, you know, he's rich and all, we're just get all excited. But some, some poor missionary who still serve the Lord uh, in some obscure land, and they have they, they don't have much to show for it, but they've been faithful to the Lord, and they walk in, and you know, well, you know, we don't, we don't get excited over that. But one is rich, and the other is not, and it's not the one with money, and that's what we we do. That's what James talks about in his epistle. And then Hebrews eleven twenty six talk about Moses. Notice the contrast here in these last two verses. Moses. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Right? He was practicing what Matthew 6 talks about. But then you think about the rich young ruler in Mark 10, 21. And Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. See, he was a rich man. He's done a lot of good things. But he says, you're actually, you, you, The one thing you're lacking is all that matters. Sell all that you have, go to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven, come follow me. In other words, make me Lord. Make me Savior. And he says, well, okay, I, I'll do that, but I'm not giving up this world. And he goes away sorrowfully. And so, uh, I think that those are the verses that kind of illustrate what Paul is saying. This is the problem with the Corinthian church. We don't want it to be the problem in our church. Uh, certainly, I hope not. And, uh, and yet, it's a struggle. Sin has wired us backwards. And when Christ saves us, he fixes the wiring 
but it takes a while for uh, all these things to start. But we'll stop there today. Any questions?